Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another evening, another weeknight, reflecting into the richness of our faith. Tonight is Thursday night, and we've uh, been focusing in on apologetics, and I've been doing so with Rob Sheridan. So, Rob, it is good to have you with me another night. Ready to bring the truth again, Joe. <laughs> Uh, so, Rob, we've been going through Reasons to Believe, Dr. Han's work on, well, Reasons to Believe. So, we've arrived at a point here in Chapter 4 where we're going to have the opportunity to reflect more critically on what it means to think critically. And also, with that, to take up the question or the observation as it has been made by some as the problem of evil. I think there's uh, some... Some things to think about there as well, and certainly the subject matter in this chapter allows us to do so. So with that, let us just jump right into logic, the instrument to reason. I don't know if we gave a technical definition of logic a few weeks ago, but we'll go ahead and do that now. Uh, When we think of logic, we are thinking of simply a reflection of how the mind structures its thought, which is itself a reflection of of the very structure of reality. So logic essentially is what undergirds what is uh, what we call common sense, Rob, right? As we spoke to it a few weeks ago, if you don't agree with logic, well, you're going to have to construct your argument against logic in a logical way, therefore you're proving logic. Okay, but this is the very thing that we're going to expand on today because, again, logic is the instrument to reason. And reason along with faith, we are, we are given so that we might uh, better understand truth. These two great gifts that we are given so as to uh, pursue truth and the deepest truth that is God. And so with that, what I thought we could do is uh, maybe get started with uh, this chapter with a statement that uh, Scott Hahn makes with specifically to this idea of uh, moral absolutes. As Dr. Hahn notes, you know, some people do try to raise doubts about the possibility of universal moral norms, uh, yet their very arguments collapse on themselves. They say, for example, that there are no absolutes, yet, of course, that is an absolute statement. Or they say, you should never impose your morality on other people, which is itself, of course, uh, is a moral prescription. In rejecting morality, people must paradoxically embrace a morality that is opposite and equally imposing. And we have to be present in that. This isn't a game of, of semantics. This is not punch-counterpunch, you know, where we're matching wits. No, this is, this is about engaging in our conversations with an understanding that we're going to put truth in the middle, especially our, our religious conversations, right? We're going to put truth in the middle and we're going to allow God to work. And if someone says to us, well, there's no such thing as absolute truth, then we have to, we have to prod a little bit, if you will. You know, I, um, 
I was in a conversation, and I have found myself in many conversations when it comes to this, uh, with a, a pastor who was while, was, while I was studying at Oxford, I, I left the classroom, and we were talking about this, and he says to me at the end of our conversation, he says, you know, Joe, um, just remember, there's no such thing as one truth. And I said to him, given what we've already talked about briefly tonight, Rob, uh, but that is a one truth. And he just kind of turned around and he left. And I thought, it's not my intention to make you feel uncomfortable. It's not my intention to outwit you. It's simply my intention to show you what is wrong in what you're saying so that it might open up the conversation. And this brings us back to what we talked about in the first week. You know, that our conversations be rooted in gentleness and reverence and humility and faithfulness um, so that in that conversation, it's not seen as, you know, something overbearing. As it turns out, we went out to dinner the next night and he had apologized and we ended up having a great conversation. And so hopefully a seed was planted there. But it's to just highlight this idea of truth. When Christ says, not I am a way, a truth, a life. I am the way, the truth, the life. This is in the imperative sense, Rob. There's nothing in God that is not absolute, right? So again, when we begin to apply logic, which is the instrument to reason, we can begin to discover in principle maybe how to better navigate some of these conversations, but not full of pride, huh? full of humility. Oh, if we enter into these discussions full of pride, we, we kind of come off come off like Vecini in, in The Princess Bride. Yeah. You know, <laughs> smarmy and arrogant. Well, clearly I can't choose the cup in front of me because you're an evil person and would put it in mine, but I know you're smart, so you'd put it in yours. We, we end up acting, acting like that. Yes. And it, it, it turns people off. It, it comes back to that engagement encounter. Look, look at how Jesus replied to his, to his respondents. He used, he used logic. Mm-hmm. Oh, who, yeah. who amongst you is without sin? Cast the first stone. That's a very logical argument, a very logical statement. I, I, I think, you know, if we get to what would Jesus do, that, that's how we are apologetic. Yeah, and what's more there, Rob is that it's also a statement that is disarming. It's disarming, and that's the beauty of logic. I think we noted a few weeks ago, Rob, how, you know, Christ was asked over 300 questions, and over 300 times he answered with a question. It was only three times that he didn't. Now, what does that mean? He simply sees the importance of logic so that we might take ownership of our question and what we're actually saying. I'll be the first one to say, Rob, there are things that I say each and every day where I don't really know what I'm saying until I actually am thinking about it critically or someone makes me think about it critically. And this is the wonderful truth behind a dialogue. The dialogue is realized when we put truth in the middle. And so we, with reverence and gentleness and humility, engage that. And in doing so, it might open things up a little bit. I I know another big thing behind this is the idea of judgment. People object to judgment all the time. And when they do, 
it's usually this broad sweeping stroke that just, you know, we don't want to judge anything. Well, that's not what Christ says. Ultimately, what Christ tells us is we are not to judge the heart, what we do not see, what is subjective, ultimately what is internal, hidden, unknown. We are made to judge what is objective, what is external, what is revealed, known, seen, right? We do it all the time, right? We make judgments to, to, to better ourselves in everything that we do. I'll leave this studio tonight, and there's going to be a, a red light and a, and a green light, uh, or a red light or a green light. I'm going to make a judgment on what I should do. And if I don't make the right judgment, it will lead to chaos and disorder. We make judgments, good judgments, because they are necessary for the ordered whole. It's when we make the judgment about what we don't know is when we get in trouble. You know, Paul challenges us, Rob, in the world of, of judging, not again with pride, with, but with a humble heart, to say, hey, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, if we see something wrong, to pull them aside. Don't give it all the bells and whistles. Just pull them aside and say, hey, no, I, I noticed something. And hopefully the friendship's uh, has already been established, and you can engage that conversation. But what what I'm highlighting now, Rob, is this idea of turning uh, statements around on people in a way, not where it's condemning them, but opening them up to see that you want to know what? We're about truth. And truth isn't something that is imposing, rigid, you know, uh, but exciting, something that opens us up. People have ideas of truth. Well, it's, I'm not free if I have to abide by all these rules and regulations. I don't know. It's actually in, in principle that we, we are free. Those rules and regulations are there for a reason. You know, if I tell my son uh, to not go across the street following that ball, I'm doing that for a reason. He can be obstinate and turn around and go running after that ball, but that could be very damaging. He may want to say, but dad, I want to be free to make my own decisions. Oh, yeah. You, do you want to be free tomorrow? Because if you fall that ball, that car coming, you're not going to be free. You know, he may not like the rules and regulations, but there's a reason why they're in place. You know, and so again, uh, this is all very important to the conversation that we're having now as it relates to the importance of truth, and why it's in place, really. Absolutely, Joe. Um, if When we're engaged with someone and we're talking about something like a sinful behavior, I think if we come at it as we're recognizing a brokenness, a woundedness in someone, then we're no longer in that trap of judging people we're saying, hey, you're wounded, and this sin, this this sin that you're you're exhibiting, is an example of your woundedness. Whether something was done to you or if you've done something to yourself, that sin spreading, the law, the rules, those are a list of prescriptions. If you touch a hot stove, you will burn your hand. If you sin this way, something bad will happen to you. Yeah. And so, please, if you are talking with someone in in you're uh, talking about a sinful behavior, recognize that as a, as a symptom of, of their brokenness. Yep. Yeah, and that's an excellent point, Rob, because when we reject something, 
we're doing so because of something else, you know? And if we can get beyond that, if we can get through that and see that for what it is, we would be well served in our conversations. For this discussion of, of you know, establishing a kind of universal standard, uh, Rob, you know, we were talking a little bit before the radio program. Um, you know, I think Scott Hahn here makes a fine point, you know, when he says, when people visit the death camps of Auschwitz, um, or when they read about the killing fields of Cambodia or tribal genocide in Rwanda, they just don't smile and say, those perpetrators had values so different from my own. Oh, how this world is wonderfully diverse. <laughs> no, they would say, this is evil. And once they say that, uh, they are acknowledging a transcendent standard of good, if you will, that there is right from wrong. Um, and when they say that, they themselves place themselves under a law, a truth, something that is binding, ultimately. And, and not, just, not just evil things, too, but there are, there are good things out there in the world that we can, we can judge as absolutely good. The firemen who ran into the, the Twin Towers during 9-11 to bring people out, those men who didn't come back, we salute their heroism universally. We say that is a heroic act. Um, I think of pictures that have been circ- circulating on the Internet um, lately with the unrest in the Ukraine and the priests out there with the crosses in between the military and, and the mm. protesters. Who can't say that that is a brave act? The, these are universal standards that, that, that come from the, from the ancients to modern time would, would say this is, this is an example of, of absolute heroism. This is an example of absolute bravery. Even Jesus, no, no greater love has a man than this, than he laid down his life for his own friends. And this is something, a truth that we, we universally accept. What we call this is, is a moral consensus. That phrase that is used when we talk about the transcendent standard good. Uh, and so, now, as we talk about this, something that Dr. Hahn gets into, and, and I would like to explore this, with our remaining time, Rob, you know, is, is the problem of evil. Um, you know, certainly this is a, a big, big question, a question I get asked a lot. And with this question, what I would like to do is to take it up in, in two contexts. First, put it in the context of, of, of freedom and love. And then second, within the context of, of Christ, ultimately, and, and mystery. Now, Okay, so we say, you know, how can God exist when there's so much evil in the world? Well, where does evil come from? Evil is a consent of the will, which is an ex- you know, expression of our freedom, right? Freedom is a necessity of love. For love to be love, it must abide in this great gift of freedom. As a father, I, I think about my children I would receive zero joy if I just wound up my children like clocks and then just let them go and they like would robotically follow and do everything that I would tell them to do. Sometimes that would be nice. (laughs) It would be quieter. (laughs) But as a father, there would be nothing that I would receive in that minus a few clean rooms, right? No, but it is when they freely 
decide to do an act, when they choose out of their own freedom that ultimately choose a good, that would ultimately bring me joy. See, and this is something I, I think we miss a little bit, you know, uh, because we live in a utilitarian world. I think you know, the great John Paul II quote, you know, we, we are made to use things and love people and we use people and love things. You know, I, because there's this emphasis on the, the loving things and using people, we, we forget what freedom's all about which is essentially about love. So because God has given us this great gift of freedom, we have evil. Now that doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but God is love. His essence is love. For all the virtues, the greatest is love, <laughs> right? Because this is what is eternal. We won't need faith when we get to heaven. We won't need hope when we get to heaven. Oh, but we will abide in love. This is why Paul says what he says uh, in his letter to Corinth about the greatest virtue. The greatest of these is love. And so love, as it defines the essence of God and really what the gift of the Holy Spirit is, we are made to see then that freedom is a necessity. And in light of that, Rob, in light of freedom being a necessity for love to spring forth, Unfortunately, people are not going to always choose <laughs> love. And the drama of all of history has been one bad choice against one good choice. Every single Hollywood movie, Rob, is caught up in the good and evil. Uh, there isn't one movie that doesn't touch upon that tension, if you will. It's what makes history itself a drama. In light of this, okay, we can maybe better understand a little bit, but it still doesn't necessarily solve the problem, if you will, because evil's still out there. Well, we also have to make the point about Christ, that in the end, he conquers evil. As Paul reminds us, where sin arises, grace abounds all the more. Romans 5.20, where sin arises, grace abounds all the more. And there is sin in all of our lives, Rob. But oh, happy fault. <laughs> the sin of Adam, but the gift of Christ. That we might conform ourselves to Christ and actually share in the mystery of his suffering. To actually receive that which is excruciating in our lives. And be mindful that even the cross that is given to us can actually be God's greatest gift to us. You know what? Uh, I, I use the word excruciating. I like to make the point. You know, the word itself comes from the Latin excruces, from the cross. And what, what we experience in those excruciating moments of our lives, you know, Robbie mentioned the word brokenness earlier. You know, that, hey, we are called to give this to God and conform ourselves to God. Um, and in doing so, be present to mystery. Absolutely. The, the, and the problem of evil, ultimately, it really is a mystery. It's, it's not something that we will be able to solve. It goes beyond our reason, like the Trinity, like the Incarnation. This is a deep, profound mystery of God. Um, the, even in the Bible, 
the, the writers are talking about. Why does this happen? Why, why does, has this evil come to me? And, and, and we're meant to ask those questions. We're meant to look back on our life and say, why, why has this evil happened in my life? But we're, we're given that promise by God. All, good, all things work for God's greater glory. And so we look back. What has this moment of tragedy brought me to? What, how has God worked with my personal sin to bring me to this moment of grace? I can look back and I can say, okay, this childhood tragedy, this, this fault of mine, this, this, this death in the family, this has all brought me to this moment where I've met my wife and I have my children and I'm here on the radio program. God, God has been working this, this plan out and I take great solace in that when I do face the problem of evil in my own life. Yeah, sometimes God st- sticks out his foot so that we stumble. Because in doing so, we come to grips with the reality of, of what we're doing. And that's, uh, that's important, you know. You know, we were talking beforehand, Rob, about um, Job. And I think it's really relevant to what you were just talking about. You know, we often think of Job in the context of a man who endured incredible suffering and, and something that God just gave him as his great test, you know. Um, and we, we think of Job and we put him in the context of patience. Oh, if I had the patience of Job. And, and I wonder if we're missing something in that. Only because to understand Job is to first understand him as an orator, as, as an inquisitor, as one who asks questions. Right? So if you were to read the story of Job, what you see is him constantly asking questions. This is who he is. He's trying to find meaning in his life. He's trying to find meaning in his suffering. He's trying to find meaning in his grief. So he's asking all of these questions. And those questions, Rob, are never answered. They're never answered. Well, no, sure they are, Job, because in the end of the story, we know that he was satisfied. That's my point. That's my point. He was satisfied when he beheld the presence of God. He was satisfied, not because his questions were answered, because he opened himself up to God. And he got the answer with a capital A, if you will. And that answer was the presence of God. So it was actually when he stopped asking those questions that he, he came to understand what it means to be a child of God. And in that moment, as we talk about uh, suffering, it is important to be present to this because this could actually be God's mercy, purifying us. God works in very unconventional ways. And sometimes, you know, we don't understand it while we're in it. But as you were just speaking to it, Rob, it, it is in looking back, it is in looking back that you can appreciate what God has done for you providentially, but also what God wants you to learn from that and where you're going into the future. Sure. And, and Job has, has another great lesson. If you're in the midst of suffering, yes, ask those questions. Vent to God. Let it, let it all out. But at the end, run to Jesus in the sacrament of the altar. Jesus, God, is present to us. 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the tabernacle. Run to him, be present with him. 
then you will be satisfied. Your questions may not be answered, but you will be satisfied in God's presence. Yeah, and, you know, God has a way of using all of our situations to draw out what He needs. You see, I think we've, there's something we easily forget, Rob. At least I know that there's something that I often forget. <laughs> Is that ultimately, we are called to offer to God our suffering. For our good, yes, but how He wishes to use our suffering for the greater good. And we are co-workers in the building up of the kingdom of God. We are called to enrich each other in our journey of faith. And I'll I'll never forget a talk that was given by one priest when I was in Steubenville when he said, you know, I believe when we get on the other side, God willing, we are going to be shown how God used all of those things that we said, here, God, use it for, for your greater good in ways we would have never imagined. People we don't even know. I mean, Rob, maybe it's that one person you see broken up in tears that you walk by on the street, and you, you don't know them, but God puts it on your heart to pray for them. Saying our Father for that person and the power of that, we'll never know. But we, but we rejoice in that. You know, and again, there's an element of mystery in this, but in that mystery, we are called to plumb the depths and to seek to understand, certainly. We are asking God questions isn't a bad thing. We just be better disposed in how we listen. You know, remember, prayer, in the Latin precari, means to ask. Okay? The word obedience, obadire, means to listen. So are we obediently adhering to God? Are we listening to God? We, we ask a lot of things from God, Rob. Are we listening to God? Maybe God needs our suffering. I mean, if there is one thing that binds the saints together, it is the way in which they offer their whole lives to God. And so all very relevant when you start talking about Christ from the cross conquering evil and how he calls us forth to share in that suffering so that it might build up the body of Christ. Very important. Yeah, when, when you're on that cross with Jesus, are you going to be the good thief or the bad yeah. thief? Yep. Are, are you going to say, I, I deserve this, I, I'm, I'm here, you're going to work with it, just remember me when you get into your kingdom, or are you going to deny the divinity of Christ and mock him? Yeah, and say, get me down from this yeah. cross. Yeah. I, I don't want this cross. I, I'm going to push this cross away. I, I, and they come in many shapes and forms, Rob. He didn't want the cross. And the other accepted the cross. Amen for that. Amen for that. Well, this has been a good discussion, Rob. Uh, our time is up, and certainly we are going to have we are going to have the opportunity to talk about this subject matter again down the road for sure when we start talking about the saints I know um, and and what that's all about. So uh, let us close in prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And God bless you. 
You've been listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholcraft.org or call KKXX during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to the Seeds of Truth on KKXX.